Art has long had a troubled relationship with realism, so much so that whether it be painting or literature, for centuries art didn't even bother with it, preferring instead symbolism, idealism and romanticism. Then around about the 1840s there emerged the complementary pictorial and literary movements, as first seen in Gustave Courbet's canvases and then the novels of Honoré de Balzac. Pushing back against romanticism, realism dared to deal, in as unmediated a way as possible, the minutiae of everyday lives. With the invention of photography, the possibility of faithfully depicting ordinary events only focused that attention even further, and since then, filmmakers have sought ever more convincing ways of representing life. Take the war picture. For many, the measure of how realistic a war film is depends upon the intensity of the battle scenes. But another way of looking at it is how it delivers the downtime, the supposed relaxation when the soldiers' minds are emptied out and they are left alone in their monotony to think of, well, their hellish circumstances. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. I hate it already and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. Christina has a new friend, right? She got a new friend? He's a night manager at her hotel and he's, she says he's a, a good listener. Oh, man! This is getting worse, oh. oh, I told you. I told you. She's one of those girls with a military fetish. Hey, yep. And she's getting off when she tells the Jody that her boyfriend's a jarhead. Really? Ah, it's this guy. This one, y'all, is from our first call together. This box is full of stuff that almost killed me. And what about this one? Where's this one from, Will? It's my wedding ring. Like I said, stuff that almost killed me. <laughs> the commonly held belief about war is that the conflict has a front, a discernible line on a map behind which the enemy resides. But what if the rules of engagement take place without such traditional demarcations? What happens if there is no front? What happens if the war is all around you, at every moment? What happens if your homeland was occupied and your enemy patrolled the very streets where you and your family had lived for decades? Giulio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers examines, with terrifying authenticity, precisely that. Released over half a century ago, it is, pathetically, as relevant and realistic today as it was when it first screened to shocked audiences at the 1966 Venice Film Festival. It depicted, with fierce immediacy, Algeria's War of Independence, which was waged from 1954 to 1962 by the FNL, or Front de Libération Nationale, against the French army. In other words, Pontecorvo was documenting the cataclysmic events that had barely ceased but four years earlier. Yet, it was the very first film that dared to depict a conflict where a modern democratic power was a tyrannical imperial force repressing the local population. And yet it is a testament to its immediate impact that despite its deeply critical attitude towards European imperialism, it still managed to win the Golden Lion at Venice and received no less than three Oscar nominations for directing, screenplay and best foreign language film. Can you imagine any such film being celebrated like that today? Here is Paul Greengrass speaking at the British Film Institute. Well, I mean, I would say it's the film that's influenced me more than any other. For all its absolute universality and brilliance as a film, 
there is something about what its conclusions were, are. And essentially what the film's saying is that the forces of liberation, the forces that, that will lead to freedom, um, can't be repressed. That in the end they will, they will out. Before becoming a feature film director, Greengrass was an investigative journalist and then branched into television where his documentary, The Murder of Stephen Lawrence, exposed institutionalised racism within London's police force. And it was Greengrass's background that heavily informed him when he filmed Bloody Sunday, which reenacted the civil rights march through Derry in Northern Ireland on January the 30th, 1972, when 28 unarmed civilians were shot by British paratroopers, killing 13. A 14th victim died later. What impacted upon Greengrass was the innovations Pontecorvo brought to the screen. Born in Pisa in 1919, Pontecorvo had joined the Communist Party early in World War II, before siding with the Partisans to overthrow Mussolini's black shirts in 1943. But his real epiphany came when he saw Roberto Rossellini's neorealist masterpieces, Rome Open City and Paysan. We Germans are not afraid, neither are we worried. While we are fighting means life or death for us. We are building a new civilization to last a thousand years. But to do that, it is necessary to destroy everything before it. The Germans will do it. We will keep our promise to the world at any cost, because this is our mission. The exposure galvanized Pontecorvo to become a documentarian before branching into fiction. Ironically, his second feature film, Capo, was one of cinema's first attempts to tackle the catastrophe of the Holocaust. But, however well-intentioned Pontecorvo's attempt may have been in depicting the horrors of the death camps, his film was met with near-maniacal hostility by some critics, with Jacques Oivette writing in Cahiers de Cinema that Pontecorvo deserved nothing but the most profound contempt. The cause for Rivette's review was for Pontecorvo's choice to track the camera in on a victim as she lay dying on the camp's wire fence. Rivette's withering criticism clearly affected Pontecorvo's understanding of film's grammar and vocabulary because by the time he went to make his next feature, The Battle of Algiers, he was so well versed in cinema's techniques and how it impacts on audiences that he all but ripped up the rulebook and wrote his own. Taking Rossellini's neorealism, Pontecorvo went one step further by not only casting non-actors and using relocations to restage the critical events in Algeria's quest for independence, but then filming those events with long lens cameras, all to give the impression that the footage had been captured by a documentary film crew and Pontecorvo's editors, Mario Mora and Mario Serandre, had cut them into the drama. It was a technique that informed Oliver Stone when, in 1991, he went to make JFK. His blistering and sprawling examination of the assassination of the American president mixed footage that was clearly fictional with imagery that reenacted historical events, 
and then included actual historical footage filmed at the time. Susie, what did you find out on Oswald? Uh, negative on his tax records. Classified. First time I know a DA can't get a tax record. So I put together a list of all the CIA files on Oswald that were part of the Warren Report and asked for them. There are about 1,200 documents and can't get one of them. All classified as secret on the grounds of national security. They gave me his grammar school records. It's a study of his pubic hairs. <laughs> the event was so startling, audiences in 1991 were sometimes unsure that what they were seeing was real or reenacted which was part of Stone's point. Expose the Warren Commission as a mishmash of fact and fiction, used not to deliver the truth, but to restabilize the political establishment. Here is Steven Soderbergh recalling the first time he saw the Battle of Algiers. There used to be that title card on the front of the film that said, not a single foot of this film is documentary, that it was all recreated which is a pretty provocative thing to put at the front of a movie. Uh, but as it turns out, as you watch the film, it's, it's kind of, it was a helpful thing uh, to have. There are a couple of sequences which look very dangerous. I, I don't know if you could do them now. And you can see how Pontecorvo's film influenced Soderbergh when he adopted a similar docudrama technique for his multi-award winning Traffic. We hire drivers with nothing to lose and throw a lot of product at the problem. Some get stopped. Enough get through, it's not difficult. Look, boys, this has worked for years, okay? And it's gonna continue to work for years. NAFTA makes things even more difficult for you because the border is disappearing. Do you realize in the next year or two at the outside, Mexican trucking companies are gonna be able to go from the States to Mexico and back again with the same freedom as uh, UPS, DHL, uh, FedEx, you name it. It's gonna be a fucking free for all. Were we on Larry King or something? <laughs> Shit. Tell us something we don't know, Eddie. But Pontecorvo's achievements were not just technical. Rarely, if ever, has a director captured, let alone orchestrated, the chaos generated by movements within enormous crowds. Here is Indian-born director Mira Nair, whose adaptation of Mohsin Hamid's novel The Reluctant Fundamentalist addresses the post-9-11 world in which the Patriot Act and asymmetrical warfare have changed the lives of everyone, everywhere. For me, the face is, um, you know, the map of life of a person, you know, because I came from a cinema verite documentary tradition and then made fiction films and understood the power of real people and, and the sort of inexplicability of, of people's characters, you know, uh, that they inform the character so much when they come from a point of view of not being an actor, you know. And Brahim Hagiag's performance as Ali Lapointe is a case in point. I mean, he is so you know, in control over his environment. His, his centeredness and his innate confidence and his quietness and his, the power that amplified itself because of his quietness is stunning, you know. But it was Ponte Corvo who saw that he could give him that, you know. As challenging as the Battle of Algiers was for Western audiences back in 1966, viewing it today is no less difficult. Back in the 1960s, precious few liberation movements were religiously motivated, their impetus instead being secular and influenced more by politics, with several groups looking more to the Soviet Union and China and less to religion as models for their goals. Here is another enormous admirer of the film, Spike Lee. What you feel about this film depends upon where your politics lie. 
you know, this stuff can get very tricky. You say I'm a terrorist, but I'm saying I'm a liberator. There's a balance, but I still think that, I mean, it's obvious to me the film, where the filmmakers, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, they're on the side of the Algerians. And, and, and in, this, in this case, I think that's the right side. The influence of Pontecorvo's film can be seen in a wide variety of films, not least being Ken Loach's Palme d'Or winning The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Olivia Isaias's Cesar winning Carlos the Jackal, and Steven Spielberg's Oscar-nominated Munich. Some people say we can't afford to be civilized. I've always resisted such people. But I don't know who these maniacs are and where they come from. Palestinians, they're not recognizable. You tell me what law protects people like these? Today I'm hearing with new ears. Every civilization finds it necessary to negotiate compromises with its own values. But it isn't just filmmakers who've been influenced by the Battle of Algiers. The 1960s, 70s and 80s were decades filled with civil rights protests, political radicalism and urban guerrilla warfare. In his film, Pontecorvo had carefully detailed the attacks carried out by the Algerian FNL, the planning and making of bombs, the delivering of those bombs into cafes, the detonation of those bombs, and the reprisals carried out by the French army, the sweeping arrests, interrogation, torture and execution. And across the United States, Europe, the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Argentina and Peru, there was an eruption of politically motivated violence in the form of the Black Panthers, the IRA, the Badr Meinhof Group, the Red Brigade, the Basque Separatists, the PLO, the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, the Montoneros, and the Shining Path. Each of those groups had watched and studied Pontecorvo's film, subverting it from an examination of the struggle for liberation into a teaching manual for terrorism. Then in 2003, as America pursued Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden into Afghanistan, and then carved open Iraq, the Pentagon arranged screenings of the film in order to study how not to exacerbate an already explosive situation and instead learn how to assuage a traumatised civilian population. Evidently, the exercise failed. Here is filmmaker Julian Schnabel. I, I think that there are moments in certain films where they transcend what the subject matter is. They transcend the way the thing is shot. It just leaves you with a with a, um, a feeling, a density of experience that alters you in some way, and you carry that with you. When I came out of the Battle of Algiers, I was different. It's interesting how we keep changing in front of it. It's the same movie I watched, what, I'm 52 years old, so 35 years ago the first time. Same film, but I'm a different person, and the world is a different place. But. Unfortunately, it didn't change enough to where you would feel like maybe we'd be a little bit more um, enlightened. The Battle of Algiers is available on DVD and Blu-ray. And whether you are a student of film, politics, history, religion, or modern urban warfare, it is essential viewing. <laughs>